The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Good evening, everyone, and, and welcome. I'm honored to be here and to be talking to Ray, who, who I'm excited for this conversation. You know, he's, he's obviously, Natalie said, all, all, the, all the great highlights, but it started in a two-bedroom apartment, really, which I think we should go back to and hear about some of the highlights and grew into the, the biggest and most successful hedge fund in history and changed the way investors do their job. It's shaped investments like risk parity and alpha overlay. And, there's too many things to talk about, Ray, but t take us back to, to the story of, of how you began and what, what some of the key milestones as you <clears throat> think about a Lifetime Achievement Award along the way. Well, I'm so glad you're asking because of my relationship <clears throat> with M MFA. Uh, so I started trading futures, <clears throat> excuse me, in 1968. And for, I would say, something like 15 years that's all I could do, you know? And it allowed me, there were so many markets. The, the only reason I got into futures and, and what we might call the hedge fund business is because it had low margin requirements and I could trade almost anything. <laughs> so it was part of the process of watching it go from agricultural futures to financial futures and all of that. And the MFA was always so important in that. And so the reason I'm here today more than anything is because of the warm feelings that I have for the MFA in that industry. But anyway, um, as you say, uh, when I was a kid, I started to, I got hooked on markets when I was 12. 12. When I caddied, I caddied, I earned odd jobs, and the stock market was hot at the time, and I would talk to people I caddied with, and, and then I'd put my money in the markets. You know, I'd save up 50 bucks, and I'd put my money in the markets. And uh, I remember the first stock I bought the only criteria I had was, it was the only company I ever heard of that was selling for less than $5 a share. And I said, I could buy more shares, so if it goes up, I'd make more money, which was a dumb Genius. idea. It was a dumb idea. But that company, which was about to go bankrupt, got acquired, and it tripled. What company? Northeast Airlines uh, was yeah. the name of it, Northeast Airlines. And, and it, so it tripled. And so I was hooked, like it, it, the game, the game, and then also you can make money in the game, which was great. So anyway, I, well, I'll, I'll tell you a couple well, of you stories. Well, you, you adapted your investing style from there, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I probably with many other similar stupid moves. Uh, anyway, the, um, so just to tell you, so after college, I graduated college in 1971, uh, an important event for me was, uh, I was clerking on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange in 1971. And um, on August 15, 1971, I followed markets. And on August 15, 1971, President Nixon gets on the television and says, we're he, he didn't say it this way, but he said, um, we're going to default on our obligation to give you the gold for the money. And so I found, wow, that's unbelievable. It's, so I went back on Monday morning, 
And I thought the stock market was going to go down a lot, and the stock market went up a lot. Forex. And I didn't understand why, because it was the first evaluation that I'd gone through. And then I went back and studied history, and I found that in March 5th, 1933, Roosevelt did the exact same thing. And I understood the mechanics of why. And I learned an important lesson then about being wrong. We'll get into some of the other mistakes I made. Yes. Um, but I learned, and it's very relevant for today, that many of the most important things that surprised me, surprised me because they didn't happen in my lifetime before, but they happened many times in history. So studying that period, for example, allowed me and Bridgewater to anticipate the 2008 financial crisis because the exact same thing happened. Interest rates hit zero, they have a debt crisis. How do you deal with that? You print a lot of money and you buy it. That whole dynamic I wouldn't have understood. So anyway, I'm giving you a long-winded view, but that's a quick cut through. No, it, it, it's a good glimpse into how you look at history, and I know that's the basis of some of your books and some of the thesis, the themes that you, that you see out here today. Was that the best trade, the anticipating the global financial crisis in your career? We made a lot of money in 2008. It was the best thing we, for our clients. It wasn't the most amount of money. I think we made about 10%, where in, I think, 2011, we made something like 44%. So I had a bigger year in other times. But we made the biggest difference for our clients then, because everything they were losing was losing money, and we were making money, and that was. So I would say, yeah, that's right up there. And biggest mistakes? Biggest mistake, 19, and this changed my life, changed my whole approach to life. <clears throat> In, um, in 1981 and 82, I had calculated that American banks had lent more money to foreign banks than they were going to be able to pay back, particularly with the type money policy. And I had expectations that we're going to have a big debt crisis. And that was very, very controversial at the time. And then on, in August 1982, Mexico defaulted. And a whole bunch of other countries started to default. And um, then I got a lot of attention. Testified to Congress, was on Wall Street Week, and so on. And I thought we were going to have a terrible economic crisis. And I couldn't have been more wrong. And I had a confidence, but I couldn't have been more wrong. I lost money for me. I lost money for my family. I lost money for clients. I was so broke that I had to borrow $4,000 from my dad to pay for family bills really? and mm -hmm. so on. I mean, it was bad. But it changed my, it was one of the best things that ever happened to me. Why, what'd you learn? First of all, I learned um, a humility to balance with my audacity. I learned like a fear of being wrong rather than I'm right, sort of an attitude of, how do you know you're right? That gave me an open-mindedness. I wanted to find the smartest people I could who would disagree with me and stress test me. I really learned about diversification. I learned that I, through diversification, I could eliminate 80% of my risk without reducing my returns. 
the engineering of, of diversification. And it was from that experience then, from that day, you know, 1982, that terrible, uh, difficult experience, that then it just kept getting better and better. We didn't have any bad years because I felt like life, uh, risk comes with return. And I felt, well, I, I don't want to do this before, but I want to have the greatest life possible. So it was, I almost had a visual image that it's like sitting on one side of a jungle, and if you can cross the jungle and get through the jungle, but there are all sorts of things that'll kill you in the jungle, and you can get to the other side, you can have a great life, or should I not take risk, and I should just say and have a sort of a medi mediocre life? And I found how to cross the jungle successfully by finding people who could see things differently than I could, a team of people who would challenge each other, who were on the same mission to make it through the jungle and make great things happen. And I, I got into that, and, and then I didn't want to get out of the jungle because... It w you were not having just, a mediocre was, life. You know, <laughs> a lot of people here, Bridgewater people here together, you know, that's what it's like when you're in it together and you're striving for great things. So that moment of that biggest mistake, I have a principle, pain plus reflection equals progress. I think the, the most learning comes from painful experiences that let you reflect on how does reality work and how do you interact with it in a better way to get principles. So that experience changed my whole approach to life. What is the, the secret sauce at Bridgewater? What is your key distinction? Um, well, there, there are a few. First of all, the culture is to have an idea meritocracy in which there is meaningful work and meaningful relationships through radical truthfulness and radical transparency. I'll say that again. A meritocracy in which the best ideas win out wherever they come from through debate, thrashing it out. And then being on a mission in which meaningful work, you know, you're into that work, you're into your mission, together with um, meaningful relationships so that you're in it together. We share each other's lives in many, many different ways. It's not like an ordinarily job. And to do that with radical truthfulness so that we can not, we talk about everything, we'll challenge that, and radical transparency so people can see that. That's an important thing. The culture, you know, culture is destiny. So culture is very important. Uh, the second thing is the writing down principles, and I recommend this for everybody. Um, Your first book. Oh. No, the first book was just a consequence <laughs> yeah. of like 30 years of doing this. But what I, what I started to realize um, is that every encounter, as I encounter a, a situation and I have to deal with it, I make a decision. And by reflecting on that decision, what type of a decision is it and how should I do it, and writing it down in a, a written principle, and then converting those written principles to equations, to algorithms for decision making. So for example, um, I think it's obsolete the way most people make decisions, which is in their heads, they're trying to juggle things. If instead there's 
the um, thinking through what your criteria, test how they would have worked through time, including 100 years ago, and across countries, that timeless and universal truths, and then building a system that is also in which the computer helps you make the decision. It's like building a computer chess game. You know, I have my criteria how I play chess, but when you build the computer chess game, because what the computer can do is that it can process a lot more information better than you can in your brain. It can process it a lot quicker, and it processes it a lot less emotionally. So you're en en engineering that game plan. So that's a hallmark of Bridgewater. Try to understand the world and then deal with it with that engineered game plan. I think that those are probably the most important reasons. But culture's destiny. Culture. So how hard was it for you to leave? I, it was joyous. <laughs> <laughs> but it took longer than you expected. But it took longer than I expected. So let me tell you joyous and let me tell you longer than I expected. Okay. <clears throat> It's like raising a family for 47 years. What do, the, what do you want? What did your parents want for you? The thing I wanted for that family more than anything was to th them to be good, successful without me. You know? In other words, they're and on their own to make, to make <laughs> what? And marry a doctor for me, <laughs> which didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> But I get it. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or better, a hedge fund manager. So it's, uh, anyway, it's, it, yeah. it, 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 it's beautiful. I see them, uh, it's the next generation. I see them strong, healthy with their community, doing it the way they want to do it. Um, and then I'm free, I'm in a phase in my life that I'm enjoying the things I'm doing in the phase of my life. What is my phase of my life? Uh, I'm at a phase of my life, I'm 74 years old. I'm at a phase of my life where the objective is to pass along what I've learned and, the, and, uh, and other things. Um, there was a book written by Joseph Campbell called The Hero of a Thousand Faces, and it's about a life arc. And he talked about uh, returning the boon at a certain stage. You know, you go through your life, you learn a lot, you acquire a lot and then you're later in your life. And the boon, I didn't know what the boon meant, the boon is returning the things that you've acquired, whether it's learned or other th money that you've made, um, assets that you have, whatever it is to pass those along. And that's the phase I'm in. So I'm in a mentor phase that I'm really loving it. It's also why you're writing books. That's right. right. It's the only reason I'm writing books. It's that phase that I feel I've learned about things, pass them along, it's now important to me. There was a recent report in the New York Times that, that you want back in. I, uh, <laughs> there is nothing more that I don't want than back in. <laughs> I, I do not want back in. It's not good for anybody. I don't want to be back in. They shouldn't have me back in. It, it's more like what I want is that kind of beautiful relationship that maybe the independent adult child has with the prior generation, to be a mentor, to help that way. So you are involved still? Yeah, in that way. In that way. Has, how but it's like being a parent, you know, you, you don't want to, you want to be asked for advice, you don't want to give advice, you know. <laughs> How's the firm done since your departure? Uh, uh, excellent. I mean, uh, but this has been a process, as you say, it's been 12 years. Why in did terms it take so long? Well, 
First of all, transitioning a founder-owned investment firm, um, you could look at the history of that. I think, like certainly for the hedge fund, we were the first and only one to successfully do this. It's notoriously difficult. And um, I have a principle that is, if you haven't done something three times before, don't assume you know how to do it. And so when I started off, I thought I w it would take two years, because it looked good. And then I encountered the, all the various difficulties of, you know, it's, you throw a lot on somebody new and, um, well, not somebody new, but some, a new job. And uh, for all those various reasons, you know, you work, you work yourself through it. But we all stuck in it together, you know? So you're writing books, and, and your latest book, you wrote it, what, three years ago. It was a very prescient book because it focused on these five themes, which it feels like we are very much living through. Talk, talk to me about where you came up with them and what they mean. Well, I didn't originally intend it to do it as a book. I intended to do it as a study. Like I mentioned, the things that I learned uh, is that I would be surprised if when things came along that didn't happen in my lifetime, I should study history. And what I've seen are, there were three things that are happening now, and then I realized there are five. The amount of debt creation and debt monetization that is taking place, the debt creation. So it made me want to study how to reserve currencies rise and decline and all of that. The second is the amount of internal political conflict that we're having with populists of the left and populists of the right, which, and when I say populists, what I mean is people who will fight and win at all costs, perhaps even against the system and the rules, that their mandate... It sounds like something that has happened. I, and I, yeah. I, I measure st statistics, these types of things. The last time there was this degree of extremity and polarity was 1900. So you, I, and in the book, you'll see the charts that, that measure these things. So this type of conflict that we're having by measurements, objective measurements, is not like anything we've seen in our lifetime. And it echoed the 1930 to 45 period to me, because in the 1930 to 45 period, it was very similar. We can get into that if you want. Sure. But I then realized in doing the study that it happened many times in history, the same pattern. And if you have, and also it's nurtured by large wealth gaps, large wealth and values gaps, irreconcilable wealth and values gaps. So you so, were not shocked to see Trump? Sorry? So you were not surprised to see Trump? We have a neo version of this. Yeah. It's, it's, it's in history. It's How like, long does it last? If I was, if I read, well, I didn't hear you. How long does it last? Well, in these periods of time, one doesn't typically move closer to reconciliation. We typically move toward greater and greater polarization and less respect for the system and the rules because it's a win at all cost kind of mentality. So the election questioning the election, questioning the Supreme Court, questioning whether there's objectives, questioning all the rules. And in any game, any sport, if the referee does, if you don't respect the referee and you don't respect the rule book, you have a chaos. And so through history, there's a strong tendency 
for that to work, to have conflict, until there's a winner. So in the 1930 to 45 period, there were four democracies that chose to have autocracies as a result of this type of conflict. So it's something to worry about. I have another principle. If you worry, you don't have to worry. And if you don't worry, you need to worry. Because, I'm good. <laughs> because if you worry, you'll take care of the thing you're worrying about. And I think we need to worry about that. So that was the second. Yes. The third was um, the changing world order in terms of having a comparable power in the form of China having a comparable power to the United States, and you could see the sides lining up. The Soviet Union was never a comparable economic power, and the military was not relevant because mutually assured destruction meant that that were, wasn't where the competition was. We now have a different game. So those three factors made me want to study the rise and declines of reserve currencies and then their empires, and then all of this started to rise. The fourth factor that I saw through history um, was acts of nature. Drought, floods, and pandemics have killed more people than wars, toppled more governments and systems, world orders, than anything else, and is a very important factor. And certainly climate, by any measure, is a big deal, not only because of the impact, but because of the enormous cost it's going to have between five and ten trillion dollars a year, depending on where, how you want to allocate the cost. World GDP is only a hundred trillion, so it's going to be a big cost. So number four is climate. And the first four don't have, don't have good prospects. And then there's number five that you see, the, the five biggest, this, this fifth force, in man's incredible inventiveness and technology. particularly the technologies that they make. And this is very important now. The technologies that are coming along are going to be revolutionary. So when I see the things transpiring, they are interrelated forces. If you have an internal conflict, you have a financial crisis, you have an external conflict, all of those things, it creates a riskier and riskier environment. So that's how I look at it. And as we come into the next, I think we're going to see great changes. We're going to come through the elections. And that is going to be very telling, very, very difficult, and will have effects on other things. What do you think is going to happen? Well, I think that there's, we have extremities, extremes, fighting each other. Um, and with not accepting losing. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean an election? Does that mean that they don't respect a ruling? Like sanctuary cities, if the Supreme Court makes a ruling, does the state say that we're not going to follow it? Does the city say we're not going to follow it? And then somebody comes in, make me, and all of that dynamic? I think that we're at the brink of some kind of a conflict like that. We'll, we'll find out in the next um, you know, in between now and January uh, 25. And the thing that worries me is that's at the same time as we can have a debt interest rate issue and we can have the China and international conflict because there are things brewing on there that are, are big. So um, uh, all of that concerns me. I think what we need, what we 
want, well, what we should have, there's only one good way, um, and that's that you need a very strong middle. You know, um, yeah, the middle has got to be strong, and then you have to have reforms, so you have to have bipartisan reforms with a strong middle, and um, we're not going to get that. Uh, we're not going to get that. Uh, but I should say, um, President of the United States, if I was President of the United States, any President of the United States should have a bipartisan You're cabinet. almost old enough to be. <laughs> so, sorry? You're almost old enough to be. <laughs> <laughs> should have a bipartisan cabinet and should then think about the reforms that we have to make. Because we have to make reforms to the system. For everything needs to be reformed. And capitalism, as we know it, needs to be reformed in certain ways so that it works for the majority of people and the people are in it together. I fear we're not going to get that. And I think the times ahead will be more uh, stressful, more challenging. So it's a lot to process. Um, we're at the MFA. So what, what do investors do about all this? Well, you know, the lesson that I learned in uh, 2000, well, <clears throat> uh, the lesson that I learned is to diversify. First of all, that you can take a lot of uncorrelated bets. And by having a lot of uncorrelated bets, you can reduce your risk by 80% relative and keep the same return if you know how to do that, engineer well and diversify. So you should diversify. I think also <clears throat> there are three things in terms of where to event, invest. Few, few items. Uh, first of all, also even where to be. Is a country like a company, earning more than, than it is spending? Does it have a good income statement and a balance sheet? For countries, that's going to be an important characteristic for a healthy country. Do they have internal political stability where they work together to create, make good things happen, or do they have an internal conflict? And number three, are they at risk of an international war? I think that keeping those things in mind will be important. Diversification, pass, creating that sort of diversification, looking where the good things are. Are I think we 0 for 3 on that in I, the U.S.? I, sorry? Are we 0 for 3 on that in the U.S.? We, I, 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 think we have, I think if you think about bonds <laughs> and our debt and certain things, we are, our financial, we're all, we're, the financial's very bad. It's not good. The internal conflict is very bad, and the risk of the external conflict is high. So I think that's reconcilable. And there are places in the world where there are these kind of renaissance things taking place, because not, not the whole world is bad. There are, there are um, the countries, ASEAN countries, which are the, some of the Asian countries, that are benefiting from the conflict. India, some. Um, Gulf states and so on, anyway. Uh, but, um, and then I think, um, so diversification, diversification of, of those types of things. And then also recognizing that the greatest power of mankind is the capacity to adapt and invent. And so with these new technologies, 
not just investing in the new technologies, but investing in those that will benefit from the new technologies. I think that those are all areas that are attractive. And then, of course, to be able to go short as well as long is important. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What do you do with U.S. bonds or the U.S. dollar right now if, if, if you are, as you are worried about the financial outlook, the debt problems in the United States? We're about to barrel into another government shutdown here because they can't agree on a funding bill. What do you do with those U.S. assets? Well, I think my, my worry is of the, of the bond market and the treasury market. It got insane when negative interest rates and also you have interest-only loans so you didn't have to pay back anything. They would give you the money, you had no interest and no principal payments. So, so it got crazy. We created a, of course, you send out a lot of checks to people. The amount of money that was sent out for checks for companies um, was about twice as much as they lost from income. And so a great deal of money was sent out. And of course, that gets spent. And so it's not surprising that we have inflation. Plus, with the conflicts, we had the um, supply chain issues. Um, and, and, and then you think, well, where should an equilibrium interest rate be? Let's take a bond yield. Uh, and I think, um, well, a couple of things. What is the inflation rate going to be roughly? What's the core? That, uh, I think it's, going to, it's in the vicinity if we don't have a supply-demand imbalance, and there's a big risk of a supply-demand imbalance, that it goes in the vicinity of 35 or 4%. Then you need a 1.5% real yield. So that brings you up to 55 and could be higher than that. I'm worried about the supply-demand issue because it's just all markets have a supply-demand. So the government has to issue a certain amount of treasuries, and beyond that, there has to be a certain amount of private debt for the economy. There's more debt that has to be sold than there is now demand for that debt. I can break down the demand for that debt to give you a notion, but a lot of those who bought bonds, and I'm colluding not just banks, Central banks have lost a lot of money. Foreign investors, Japanese invested a lot, others invested in bonds. They're holding a lot of bonds, and, they're, and too much, and they have losses on those bonds. And they also, uh, and so their appetite is not as much. And then also, sanctions have played a role, the geopolitical, because some worry, some countries worry, that if they have, are holding US bonds, they might get sanctioned, and that's having an effect on the bonds. 
So these sort of exogenous supply-demand questions. When I see the cycles happen, that's always how it had happened. It started with the government being in, it started with the private sector being in trouble. Then it goes to um, the central government becomes in trouble because central governments are, uh, they can tax and they can spend, but they can't print money. And when they have to get money in the hands of people and they don't have a much, they have to sell a deficit. That's where the central bank comes in. They buy it. And then when they buy those bonds, and those bonds go down a lot, they have large losses. Those large losses produce their own set of problems. For example, the Bank of England now has uh, losses about 2% equal to about 2% of GDP. And they have regulations that the bank has to have a certain central bank, has to have a certain amount of bank capital. That means they have to go to the government for 2% of GDP. That means the government's got to come up with 2% of GDP more, which means they either borrow it or tax it, and that's a problem. So that dynamic of supply and demand for bonds is a, is a big scary thing that when you read history, um, it's a source of concern. So are we going to have a debt crisis in this country? We're going we're gonna to have a debt crisis in this country. Soon? How fast it transpires I think is going to be a function of um, that supply-demand issue, and so I'm watching that very closely. Uh, but I think that government needs to like issue the, a lot of debt the, next it's year. It's like the it's 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 very it's a very risky situation. What about China, Ray? Because you have been an investor in China for decades. I started I started to go to China in 1984. I was invited. Um, by a Chinese company, Citic, which was the only company that they called it a window company. It was the only company that was allowed to deal with the outside world. This is just when it started opening up. Deng Xiaoping came to power and opened up China in 1978. And so in 1984, it was there. And I didn't go for money. I went for curiosity. And then I got to be, um, help them build the economic system, build wonderful friendships. I think it was 15 years that I went to China and I was doing this without ever making a dime. And uh, I did it for the pleasure, the interest, I liked the people and so on. And so I've evolved um, all through those years and, and I've, so I've had that intimate understanding and, uh, and you know, that kind of relationship. And of course, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's a, tragedy how all this is happening. Well, right, because now people are wondering whether China is even investable at all for an American investor. Yeah, I, I, think, uh, I think the question is, uh, there's a lot of reasons to question that having to do with the nature of the dynamics. I'll, I can enumerate the problems, some of which will pass, but this issue of conflict with the United States is a big issue, and when you see in history foreign exchange controls, you could see the United States impose foreign exchange controls and capital controls, so you're not allowed to invest there. They have their internal issues. They have a debt issue that's an important issue that requires a debt restructuring. I won't go into that unless you want me to. They have then this, um, um, this internal um, issue about um, 
what uh, Xi Jinping calls the 100-year storm on the horizon. In other words, the conflict, the self, and everybody's lining up, so you have much more of a command situation. You don't have the same, it's, Deng Xiaoping said, it's glorious to be rich. Hmm. You won't hear that said as much in China now. So these dynamics, and then we have, you know, we all have our own issue. It's the most important thing for the United States is to be strong. To do well, to be strong financially, to be good with each other. You know, if we're strong, that's the most But for all our thing. problems, aren't we in better shape than China? Um, in, in many ways, yes. Um, and, but the, you can't count China out, okay? This is not like you know the winner of this game. Um, since I started going to China in 1984, per capita income increased by 28 times. If you look at the powers of their industries, in many cases, for the next 10 years, we're going to have a very strong rival, okay? A very, very strong competition between ideologies. And I think myself, we have to bring back what was the best of the United States in order to compete effectively. And, and I, 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 I experienced it. I experienced the American dream. And what that means is it's, it's almost basic. I was lucky I had two parents who cared for me, raised me. I went to a public school, and I came out to a world of equal opportunity, at least for, for me. If we don't have that for most people, and we fight each other in the, in the classic way, the left and the right, the communists and the fascists, if we do that, we are going to be in trouble. And so it can't be taken for granted. This is going to be an interesting time and an What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Interesting conflict. It's also happening in an interesting time for our economy. We're coming out of COVID. We're facing these higher rates and some of these debt problems. Do you, do you think, Ray, we're, we're going into recession? I think you're going to get um, a meaningful slowing of the economy so that you come to something like zero interest rates, a zero growth rate, plus or minus, like one or two percent, if we don't have the supply-demand problem with treasuries. If you have the supply-demand problem with treasuries, you're going to see a whole different dynamic, and I'll, I'll tell you what it will look like. A bad one. It, it's a bad one because then when the when there's not enough demand to deal with the supply, you also can have selling of treasuries. There's $31 trillion of treasuries, and if those want to sell, then the supply-demand imbalance can become very large. 
And when you have a very large supply-demand balance, it puts the central bank in a very difficult position because it means interest rates have got to go up a lot to ration that. And the way that happens when interest rates go up, it curtails capital formation. It, you know, a lot of higher interest rates means because of that supply-demand, something's got to give and new capital creation and new borrowing doesn't, and you have a contraction. That will force the central bank into the position of thinking, I'm, do I have to come in there and buy and buy again? And if they go and buy and buy again, then that'll have a, um, it'll depreciate the value of money. So that trade-off becomes more difficult. The more debt you have, the more trade-off, more difficult it is for the trade-off. Because you have to think about it. One man's debts are another man's assets. So if you don't have interest rates high enough mm. that the creditor gets a good return, but have them not so high that the debtor gets in trouble, which that balancing act is very difficult when you have a lot of debt, um, then you're going to have a problem. And we're getting closer and closer to that type of problem. So I think it very much depends on the supply-demand condition uh, for the Treasury market. So in the, in the meantime, the baseline is what? A stagflation? Because it sounds like you still expect yeah, core inflation to that, be elevated. I, I think, you, and again, I don't, you know, there's a saying in the markets, he who lives by the crystal ball is destined to eat ground glass. I, I, you know, I, no I believe fun. that. That's why diversification mm -hmm. is so important. But I would say that without that, we're headed into a type of stagflation, a type of stagflation that has, in my opinion, has something like a three and a half percent for three, you know, which is a tolerable amount, with a growth rate that is something like a one percent, you know, and that's kind of where the equilibrium is that brings about a high enough real rate, probably in bonds, a one and a half percent real rate. So I take my three and a half, I add one and a half, and I get to five. That's not a precise number, could be six, could be who knows. And, and, and so the equilibrium is about that. That would affect the equity prices not well, but not terribly. That's what it would look like without uh, the supply-demand problem, I think. When I, when I listen to you talk about some of these, these riskier events that are happening, downside risks, I think you would call them, it, it's a little scary, the picture you paint. Is gold a safe haven? What is the safe bet right now for, for these powerful negative forces? Well. <laughs> Is that cheering me on, or? <laughs> uh, What's safe? Diversification, effective diversification is the best thing. Right now, cash is attractive because of the relative pricing and the exposures of those assets. Everything always changes. Um, and um, gold should be a part of everybody's portfolio. The amount, maybe it's 10%, I'll give you a, an indicator like that, because it is, um, it is negatively correlated during those times, because that dynamic produces typically a tightness in monetary policy, like 29, like 2007, and then you have the down, and then you have the printing of money, and then in that particular dynamic, like 71 I was talking about when I was clerking on the floor of the exchange. That dynamic 
means that that kind of hard money uh, is something uh, that's valuable. You, you ordinarily don't want to um, have much of it, but it's a very, very effective diversification, a diversifier, particularly in, um, in times like uh, we're describing it could be. Is the dollar safe still? I think we make the mistake of thinking too much about the dollar against another currency. Um, all the three major reserve currencies, it's an ugly contest, right? So they're all going to print a lot of money. They're all, you know, when you get into, they're all spe spending more than they're earning. They're all having a lot of debt. They're all monetizing the debt. And no currency is going to want to be more uncompetitive in relationship to the other. So if you look at the 1930s or you look at the 1970s, at various paces they devalued together relative to gold or relative to other assets. So, um, and it, it's a very important question because there are two purposes of the currency. Currency is debt. When you own a currency, you're holding a piece of debt. And debt is a promise to receive currency. And the two purposes for a currency as a medium of exchange and a storehold of wealth. And if it's not a good storehold of wealth, that's a very scary situation. So, and that, that, could, that would be more a world situation than a particularly United States situation. But it can become a United States situation. There's, a, there's the exorbitant privilege of having a reserve currency. Yeah. What the exorbitant privilege means is that you get to borrow a lot because those who are transacting in it want to hold it because that's their way of savings. And when they save, you borrow. And so if you lose that exorbitant privilege, it changes the capacity to borrow and it changes the financial, economic, and then of course, political and economic circumstances at the same time. That's dark. So um, Ray, it wouldn't be a proper Lifetime Achievement Award discussion without me asking you for some advice, I think, for some folks in the room or other folks starting out. I know you've given oh, a lot oh, uh, already, uh, but any, uh, any other tips? I, 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 think, I think life is a, a journey. and It's like a video game. You know, you go after your goals, you encounter your obstacles. Reality works the way reality works. You have to learn how does reality work and, have, and then develop what are your ways of dealing with reality, what I call your principles. Um, and then you have your life arc. And the life arc gives a different assignment. I think that there are th three phases in life. There's the first phase where you're dependent on others and you're learning, your kids in school kind of thing. Then there's the middle phase of your life where others are dependent on you and you're working and you're trying to be successful. And then there's the third phase in your life where you make a transition, you pass it along, and then you move. And as uh, Joseph Campbell said in Heroes of a Thousand Faces, you're free to live and you're free to die. And in that arc, I think it's very important to understand the life arc, to understand some of the lessons that I learned about pain plus reflection equals progress, the value of learning from mistakes, the um, value of meaningful work and meaningful relationships, having those things together, um, the value of an idea meritocracy. 
these, I think, are probably the most important things. There's not one path to life. Um, it's not money. It's not status. Uh, those things that are held up are wrong. They're misleading. I think most importantly, it's health and happiness. Um, for example, in, in the United States, we, we have a health problem. The average life expectancy is five years less than in Canada and other countries. But health, happiness, that fulfilling the family, the meaningful work, meaningful relationships. But anyway, encounter your journey. I think also, know your nature. We're all born with a certain nature. We think in a certain way. We have our strengths and weaknesses. We're going after different things. If you know your nature and find the path that suits that nature, recognizing that other people are strong where you're weak and vice versa, I think that that's a good path. I don't know, that's a long-winded answer to your question. What do you do for fun? Do you play uh, video games? Because uh, uh, no, just since you mentioned it. No, <laughs> I, I, I don't play video games. Um, <laughs> I, um, I have a passion for, I, I, I love scuba diving, I have a passion for ocean exploration. I do ocean exploration in a very serious way. I play with my grandkids. I'm crazy about my grandkids. I like snowboarding. Um, I, lo I love music. I like to do a lot of music things. Um, I'm, and I'm just addicted to markets. Aren't we all? Ray Dalio, thank you so much. Thank you. We could try to explain what it feels like to get your work done on a John Deere. The way a Z-Track mower finishes in half the time you thought it would. Or how much easier it is to move mountains of soil with a 1 Series tractor. We could even go into detail about how it feels to tow up to 4,000 pounds behind a Gator XUV. But if you really want to know what it's like to run with us, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you.